You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called Covered in Dust, a journey through the book of Matthew, looking at the life, ministry, and relationship that Jesus had with his disciples that would later bring the kingdom of heaven through normal, everyday people. Thanks for joining us. If you are just visiting or haven't been here in a while, we are moving our way through the book of Matthew thematically, so not verse by verse, but taking chunks out of it and trying to find themes, particularly the theme that was mentioned on the screen, covered in dust. That was a rabbinical theme that basically just meant you followed Jesus really closely, that you caught all of his mannerisms and you watched the big things and the small things, the important things, the secret things, the inspirational, exciting things, and some of the boring, humdrum day-to-day things, knowing that Jesus was speaking not just about what uh, a church would do on a Sunday or what a believer would do on a Sunday, but what a follower of him would do in every single moment of their life. And this first segment that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks has been founded in Matthew 5 through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been taking different beatitudes, different blessings, and using those things to help guide us through what is pretty deep and kind of dense of a teaching. And this is actually the very final message that we're going to look at in this first segment called Following Jesus from the Inside Out. Everybody say inside. Everybody say out. Yeah, Jesus would talk about these Pharisees who would look a certain way on the outside, but they were different on the inside. He would call them hypocrites, which wasn't actually an insult back then. It just meant actor. It just meant don't be a Denzel Washington. Don't be a Jennifer Lawrence. It just meant don't be an actor in your faith, but truly look to be transformed from the inside out. And these are some of the uh, words that come to mind for me as I reflect back on this segment. Um, These blessings, if you notice, each of them, uh, they're not Ten Commandments. In fact, uh, there is a parallel in Scripture that the writer Matthew is making between Jesus and Moses. Both Jesus and Moses wandered in the desert. Both of them ascended a mountain. Both of them received revelation from God. But what Jesus came up with and what Moses wrote down on that stone were completely different. Moses brought a law, but Jesus brought blessing. And so what we have instead of Ten Commandments is eight blessings in which kingdom life can flow through. We might think of the entire segment this way, that the kingdom blessing is free that Jesus is bringing. He is, he's changing things from the inside out, and these are not behavioral modifications. They're beliefs to be received. And he would, he would talk about this kingdom blessing that is free, pursuing, and wide open available to every heart because of the love of God. There's, there's, no, uh, there's no trench, there's no barrier, there's no fence, there's no ladder to climb, there's no ticket to earn, there's no paycheck to pay to try and get to this blessing. This, this blessing that he's trying to talk about in these nine Beatitudes is a wide open invitation, non-exclusive to any man, woman, or child. And these, these, these are the, the blessings of the Holy Spirit, really, that when received can actually change us. Not just changes for a day or change our actions or change the way that we act when the spotlight is on us, but can actually change us from the inside out. If these, these kingdom blessings were to take residence, the kingdom blessing, for example, the poor in spirit and the mourners would, would, would flow as, as, as the belief attitudes inside of our ears, between our ears, would change from pride into a need. If spiritually somehow we were to find ourselves not accidentally making mistakes here and there, but coming to terms and finding acceptance of the reality that there's missing pieces inside of me. I don't have enough on my own, and I'll, 
I'll need something divine. I'll need something more than wisdom, more than politics, more than advice, more than friendship. I need some sort of a spiritual supplement here. I'm in need. There's a kingdom blessing for people that will come to that place. For somebody that's realizing that life um, is not uh, in God to be controlled and, and that there's a futility in trying to be a king where Jesus should be king, and the kingdom disciple, therefore, is, is realizing this blessing that meekness is actually a greater way to get needs met than control. And the, the sides of us of manipulation that need to win the argument and to be the best and the brightest and the most successful, the mirage and the hope that somewhere out there that someday that we're going to have everything together and all of our ducks in a row is a myth. And, and when we discover the emptiness of that myth, we, we step into this place of divine trust. And we can actually see the fruit of righteousness and the hunger and thirst for righteousness in our life. And finally, last week we talked about the kingdom blessing that meets us when we realize that there is more to gain through giving than receiving. And that, um, that there is a sweet secret place uh, with the Lord that when we give, we actually find the things that we're trying to go and take are right at our hands. Why would we fight for something that he wants to give for free? And finally, this is our last blessing. I'll read it to us and pray for us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, Jesus, thank you for those that are gathered here. And I know that you are speaking, and, uh, and I just declare this place in truth to be a receptive place that knows how to hear your voice. Uh, people that um, uh, are church people, people that are not church people, people whose parents were church people but are not church people, all people of all different tribes, tongues, and nations can hear your voice because you are a good shepherd and you call us by name. And so thank you for surprising us today by your grace to realize you are better than we thought and more gracious than we know. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you're like me or maybe you know somebody that's like me. I'm sure it's not like you that uh, is better at arguing with people when they're not in the room than when they are in the room. Does anybody suffer from this or have an issue with this before? It's like there's this, there's this, there's this, dic, dic, this ability to speak with eloquence and argue about things and people that you don't like and circumstances you're upset about when you're in private, but all of a sudden that kind of eloquence doesn't necessarily come out when you get into fights when they're, when they're in the room. Uh, you know, you, you come home, and uh, if you're a married person, it starts something like this, like, babe, you will never believe what happened today. Or if you're single, maybe it's just Tammy. Just give Tammy a call on the iPhone. You're like, Tammy, you are not going to believe what so-and-so said to me today. They got another thing coming. Ch Chuck, I don't know, Chuck, is that the name of the guy that we call? Chuck, bro, you're not going to believe. It starts out like this, and, and, and we start to, to talk about, you know, the problem or the person that's, that's in our way. And it's like, we're like Ernest Hemingway when no one's around. Have you ever noticed this? There's a spot by the kitchen. I can just, I can preach better than I preach on Sundays. I mean, I am just ready to flow, and I feel like Eminem and Eight Mile, like the beats and the bars are just coming to me, and I've got all of the eloquence. And Kyra's like beatboxing for me, like, mm, ah, 
and, and none of that stuff comes out. You ever notice that? You ever, you ever have like a parent-teacher conference and you and your wife, uh, your spouse, you go, or your husband, you go and write down on the legal pad like all the things that you're going to say, this like treatise of justice that you're going to lay down, the great emancipation proclamation four score and seven years ago. You told me my kids could have snack and how dare you put me next to that crazy kid. Like you have all the words when no one's around. And then as soon as you show up, you look at your spouse and both of you guys look at each other and you're like, go ahead, you, you, you go ahead and just tell them. You, and they're looking back at you. I mean, I'm not going to, I mean, you go ahead and tell them what you were going to say. And none of the stuff on that legal pad seems, seems to come out. It's funny that uh, it's easier to argue with people when they're not there. The way, the way that I kind of made this in my mind, I kind of settled this in my mind, was this, this quote up on the screen. It's easier to argue with people that aren't present with you because when people aren't present with you, it's easy to see them just as that problem without actually having to see them as a person without actually having to see that they are a person too, that they have struggles in their life um, as well, you know, that, that they've got a crazy handful of 30 kids in their life and they're coming from a background that's tough and they're seeking to understand and trying to come your way. And there's this thing, uh, this remembrance, I think, all of a sudden that when we get in the contact of the people that we have conflict for, that um, we, for, we tend to forget some of the nuances of their humanity, of who they are as a person. And we've, we've sort of put them in and hand them in to just being, just being a problem. And Brene Brown talks about this in her book. It's called the Braving the Wilderness. And she talks about how it's easier to hate somebody from far away and it becomes increasingly difficult to hate and dislike and judge people when we move closer, she says. From far away, it's easy to see someone's sin. When, when you move closer, it's easier to see the love and the mercy of Jesus on that person's life. When we're far away, it's easy to kind of encapsulate somebody, to kind of prejudice somebody, to put somebody in a box. When you get closer, you start to see the nuances and the connection and the humanity within it. And she talks about how distance is the, is the, uh, the place where disconnection can thrive. I've heard another quote, and this is probably just as good as the first one, but uh, it's this concept that judging others um, is easier than judging ourselves because we tend to judge people through their actions, whether we judge ourselves through our intentions. I don't know if you have anything uh, in your life like this or have experienced this, that from afar, it's easier to create disconnection and judgment than when we move up close. And so this is a photo, actually, that has been uh, part of uh, the news circuit for a long time, right? Um, and actually, there's a guy named uh, John Stegenga who's in our church. I think he either took this photo or something very similar to it. His name was published in the Washington Post. Um, and this, uh, this picture really captured the dialogue discussion of the nation for, for the last couple of weeks. And so what you see here is um, an Indian uh, leader named Nathan, I believe. I don't remember the young man's name from the Catholic school that's behind him uh, with Make, Agra Make America Great Again hat on. And then this sea of like high school kids from this Catholic school. And then not pictured is this other group of kind of black Jewish uh, national kind of um, uh, people that are demonstrating um, for, for their cause at the steps of the Washington Monument. And then you kind of have this ensuing collision between these three groups. And out of that, we have this picture. And we know uh, from seeing this picture and then maybe seeing the interviews after it or maybe just seeing the entirety of the hour-long YouTube that there's more to this picture than meets the eye. And that looking at this picture from afar, there's a lot of prejudices, a lot of uh, assumptions that can be made based on facial expressions, based on color of skin, based on the experiences that we've had in the past. But all together, no matter where you find empathy for the picture, you know, uh, you know, in your heart of hearts as you listen to the interviews that it's harder to judge the thing as you move up close. And so from afar, it looks like it could be just a Native American guy playing a drum. And you might think to yourself, depending on your background, why doesn't the guy verbalize 
his thoughts and his feelings. I mean, in a, in, a, in a nation of freedom of speech and public discourse, it would be important in a moment of hostility to clarify your message rather than just beating on an instrument could be the assumption. But if you were to move a little bit closer, you maybe could understand the, the ways that Native American heritage would communicate culture from one to another and, and just to assume that, you know, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, you know, uh, ways of discourse is the only way to communicate. He's communicating through his language, and it's a language barrier that some of us fail to understand. And if you look at the kid, you look at the smirk on his face, and you think that looks like uh, haughtiness and, and arrogance. And, but if you look at the video, if you really look, you can see other sides to that story as well. I mean, gosh, it's one kid out of 150. He didn't plan for it. Nobody gave him a speech to write. Nobody gave him kind of like a, 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 a lesson in public discourse. He's 16 years old, hanging out with his friends. He's probably worried about the girl he's going to go try and hook up with and talk to at his field trip, and here comes this camera along with an entire event that's going to change his future. And he doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing if you moved a little bit closer. And you look at the pain and the anger of the black Jewish group that was there that's yelling, and you think, why would you be yelling, and why are you being inflagatory and all these things? And, and as we look at radical militant groups and we understand a little bit deeper that there is not just anger there, there is pain there, and there is a voicelessness that feels like it needs to shout to be heard. And so when we move further away, it's easier to judge. But as we move closer, empathy, compassion, connection begins to take root. So Jesus has this really interesting saying uh, that couples with one of the more difficult teachings that he ever gave. And it's in Matthew chapter 8. We'll get to it soon. But Jesus says uh, to this group of disciples, he says this comment that foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Okay, so foxes, they have these little holes, he says, to live in, and birds, they have nests, but, but the Son of Man, the King of the universe, the one who breathed it all into motion, he has no place to lay his head. When I was a kid, I thought that potentially what he was saying is that to become truly a Jesus follower, you would have to become homeless. And as I've looked at this scripture and other cross-references of scriptures as well, of course, that's not exactly what he means. Jesus is not saying that to follow him is to be homeless. Uh, uh, what he's really saying is to follow him is, is more along the lines of to not make your tribe your home, to not make your family your home, to not make your job your home, to not make your, your, your socioeconomic status your identity because the Son of Man has no home in those places. And so then the disciple would retort back. He says this. Another disciple says to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. I mean, a completely valid human request, right? And especially on top of that, a biblical one that you're supposed to honor your father and mother. It certainly be a good idea to go ahead and bury them before you go and follow. And he says, let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. Is Jesus saying that we shouldn't have fathers, that we shouldn't have families, that we shouldn't have tribes, that we shouldn't have churches or groups or denominations? Of course, he's not saying that. He's saying... It's, oh, it's, it's, it's blessing. It's a blessing to have a father and to honor your parents. It's just that in following me, you cannot make your home in them. You cannot make your home to find your identity in these places of belonging that we find. And so a tribe, Seth Godin, this um, kind of Christian author and leader, I remember back in 2009 wrote this book about uh, tribes. And, and he talks about how tribes, it's a sociological term, is just what we do when the world gets big to try and make it smaller, to make it more manageable. Uh, tribes are the place where, where beliefs are strengthened. Tribes are the place where people are kept safe. Tribes are the place where we find meaning and belonging in the world. Tribes are 
according to Seth Godin and most sociological studies, the, one of the most important things that, that we have in terms of discerning who we are as a person and where we fit in the world. And tribes are important things, but Jesus is saying, I believe in Matthew 8, in two different ways, that tribes are beautiful things to be a part of, but tribes can never become your home when you are a follower of the kingdom of God. If Jesus were here today, he would have a mother and a father, but those would not be his home, that he would root for a football team, but those would not become his identity, that he would have a job and therefore have a class, but those things would not define who he was. He would have relatives and have friends, but those things would not ultimately be the number one indicator of who he was and what he was about on the earth. And so maybe we could look at Matthew 5, verse 9, the blessed are the peacemakers verse, through this lens that Jesus is calling peacemakers sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are sons of God. Maybe Jesus is calling peacemakers sons of God because peace is only the reward for people losing their identity in tribe to find their true identity in God. Blessed are those who know that no one has the corner on the market of the kingdom. Blessed are those that, every, that know that everyone's wrong except for Jesus in some way. Blessed are those who are willing to check and challenge the status quo inside their tribe when they see it doesn't align with the kingdom of God. Blessed are those that are willing to stand up for the outsiders of their tribe, even if it costs them relationships with insiders in their tribe. Blessed are those who live in a tribe but find their home in God alone. Blessed are those who are willing in their families, not just in the public forums and in blogs and in Instagrams, but in public, but in the private places of life where it costs us the most, where disconnection is the most costly. Blessed are those who will stand for the truth in their home. Stand for the truth with their family, with their children, when it costs the most, with their spouse. Blessed are those who don't make packs of loyalty with people that they love and trust at the expense of their connection with the kingdom of God because those and only those will facilitate peace in the world. This is maybe what he is saying. And so Jesus, what you love about him, is that he is a love and truth guy, that his love comes with truth and his truth comes with love, and he's an equal opportunity offender. And although many want to be on the inside with Jesus, he refuses to have insideness with anyone that isn't on the inside with the kingdom of God, putting that first as highest priority. He offended everyone he talked to. Jesus wasn't just coming here to condemn the rich because they kept their money at the expense of the poor. He spoke to the rich, called them to give their things. He told the rich young ruler, your money is keeping you from God. You will leave your money. You should leave your money to come and follow me, but he spoke to the adulterous woman as well and said to the adulterous woman, you know, the stones that these people are going to throw would kill your body, but the sin that you are you're holding in your heart and in your life will kill you even more uh, and more permanently than the stones that are about to be thrown here. So go and sin no more. He went to the crippled guy and told the guy, it's time to get up and move uh, towards your healing. We can't wait for you know, the, the, the pool of Bethesda to get stirred up again to go and get healed. He's saying, he's saying, every love, all the love that I give has truth to it. And all the truth that I have has love to it as well. And so blessed are the peacemakers that are willing to offend people and their feelings in the name of the kingdom of God. 
This is highly offensive because the tribe exists in some part to defend the integrity and the character of the people within the group, oftentimes at the expense of the people outside of the group. And, and, the, and, and the persecution didn't just come from the Romans. It came from the, from the Jews as well, and it came from the rich, and it came from the poor. And we understand now why a peacekeeper, or a peacemaker rather, would instigate persecution because he, he, Jesus has no loyalties with anything other than uh, first and foremost, the kingdom of God. And so I remember um, when, I was, uh, when I was interviewing um, for a job uh, between teaching um, at Southside High School, the public school that I used to teach at, and coming over to City Lights here to this church, I had interviewed with this um, really awesome church called Grace that's in uh, Snellville. Some of you guys know them. They're connected to 10,000 Fathers, and they have several campuses all around. It's a really big, thriving, beautiful church. And I remember um, just wanting to learn a lot from them, and I was a student. I took notes the whole time and, and talked to a lot of people, and I was also obviously being interviewed, and it didn't um, work out uh, in the end um, working for, for that church. But I remember um, having lunch with this guy, and his name uh, was Scott Kindig. He drove a 1995 Corolla. Um, he wore just completely plain clothes. He was an executive pastor of the church, and he was an elder there as well. And I remember talking to him about how Grace got started and um, how it's doing now, and it's been going on for like, I think, you know, 20 or 30 years, and the senior pastor just recently passed away. And I remember talking to this guy and learning a lot from him um, because uh, he, he talked about things that you didn't see from the Instagram feed. Um, he talked about the things that I see, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis from Monday to Friday, you know, doing church work stuff. He talked about the things that, you know, most people don't think of when they think of church. And I think as I listened to him talk and as I uh, kind of took notes and asked questions, I started to realize, even though he was not necessarily the guy that was out front, the one with the big, you know, the microphone and the one that was seen, um, he played a very, very significant role within the context uh, of Grace Church. He told me stories about, you know, different times when the church was on edge and, and it, was, it was ready to kind of uh, potentially get a split or get into a break. He talked about different times when there was leadership transitions that happened in the church that caused friction and tension. He talked about different times when there was theology debates. He talked about different times when tithing wasn't great. He talked about different times when there was building campaigns and changes that went on. And he talked about the significance of of. <clears throat> Of, of, of establishing trust with people. He talked about the significance of, of not just winning arguments, but winning people. He talked about the significance of, of connection. And even though there was disagreement, there had to be this connection, this love that I'm going to choose towards you. I'm never going to choose away from you. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And if there's any a gap between any kind of connection, I'm going to fill that gap as quickly as possible with trust rather than suspicion. He talked about peacemaking in a sense. And what I, what I realized from that conversation at Jersey Mike's with, with this guy who drives a Camry and, and we wouldn't you know, notice him as the flashy guy walking down the street, nobody would know him, but he, he definitely was an anchor for this church over the years. What, what, what I saw from him is that, is that without peacemakers, families, communities, and churches can never thrive and can never have health the way that we want them to. What I realized is that the reason why that church was able to go on for 10 and 20 and 30 years was not because it had great sermons and not because it had great worship music and not because it had great branding communication. It was because there were people that were willing to move closer to people when it hurt. 
They had people and leaders that decided to choose into the table of discourse and make sure that seeking to understand was more important than being seeking to understood. That they had, had leaders that chose that when it got tough, not if it got tough, but when it got tough, they would have the hard conversations of truth in love when toxic behavior would start with inside of churches. I mean, this is a church of three, 4,000 people. And what I learned from that lesson, I'll never forget that day, is that without that kind of person, without that kind of, of, of blessing, without that kind of perspective of the kingdom, families, schools, sports teams, anything that has to do with people getting together, without the decision of peacemaking, without the decision of I'm going to move with love and truth towards people, not away from people, then unity would be impossible. And so this is, my, this is my kind of conclusive statement of how I think these two verses and blessings come together in one. This is what I feel like, like Scott talk, taught me at Jersey Mike's that day, is that peace, it's on the screen, peace is never free. Everybody wants peace. Everybody wants to be part of a church and a family and, and a school and a team that's thriving, a marriage that's thriving. And everybody loves peace. Sometimes people love peace more than people. But peace is not free and peace is not cheap. And for peace to happen, peace can't be discovered. Peace must be made. It must be decided and it must be fought for. Talk of peace is cheap, but love is expensive. And it will cost you persecution. It will cost the church persecution. It will cost you as a parent Persecution, conflict, opposition for you to establish truth in the context of love. This is what it will cost you. The reward of, of the persecuted is what peace is. Blessed are those that love people enough to be persecuted by them. Their reward is peace. Blessed are you when you stand in your marriage for the higher standard. Oftentimes in our marriage, loyalty and loyalism becomes more important than Christ. And in our marriage, there's this tendency of dysfunction where it's like, I won't kind of call your stuff out as long as you don't call my stuff out. And we'll kind of move on in this dysfunctional role. And peacemakers, Jesus is saying, blessed are the peacemakers. Like, blessed are you when you choose Jesus over your marriage and then, uh, then receive both. Because choosing your marriage over Jesus, you'll lose the marriage and you'll miss Jesus in the way. He's saying, blessed are the people that are standing for that standard when you... When you when you stop in the middle of somebody inside of your tribe, in its discomfort to stop their gossiping, you are choosing into peace. Peace isn't a, a, a slogan on a stand and a march with a, with a rallying cry or a speech that's given in front of a bunch of people. Peace is a small step-by-step -step decision to make a painful, hard choice to speak truth and love. Treat, speak truth to somebody that you love because you love them and love them as you speak that truth to them. That is the only commodity that resources truth, uh, that resources peace within our families and our relationships. Blessed are you when you choose to lose the argument but to win the person. And that, and that winning the argument is not the point. Love is the point. Truth is the point. Capital T, Jesus truth, not you being right and proving your... Proving your point, your worldview is not the thing that's going to be the vehicle for peace. It will be the love of Jesus, and people are an encounter away from that peace. Peace will not come from the, the entrance of a great argument, but from the entrance of the Holy Spirit that can bring somebody towards the capital T truth. When you sit down with a person, even when you know it won't end well, Jesus sees that. Jesus sees when you sit down with a person, you tell them... Uh, Tell them what, what the truth is saying or, or with the scripture, with the chapter and verse. Blessed are you when you're discovering that's worth 
the cost, when you tell the truth, when people don't want to hear it, when you refuse to strike back, when, when somebody strikes you on the cheek and you turn the other cheek. Blessed are you when you pray for those who attack you and those who persecute you. And this actually leads me to the intentional question for today as I draw us to a close. But um, I actually um, was, was, was looking at this passage and, and the, the, the passage that came to mind out of these two verses, blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are the persecuted, was this passage that says, blessed are you that pray for and love those that, that persecute you. Don't you know that the Gentiles um, create alliances and have friendships? Uh, people that believe in God or don't believe in God or are ambivalent for God, everybody has family and everybody has connections. He says, but, 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 but following me, the, the, the step in following me starts with this place of not just loving people who like you back, but loving people who don't like you back. And, and there was a powerful moment that I had even in preparing the sermon. As I read through that passage, I felt like the Lord asked me the question, um, what is it that you're praying for people that have come against you? How are you praying, or how could you pray for people that come against you? He said, you really can't, you can't forgive anybody that you're not praying for. There's a good word that, that says you don't have to be face-to-face -face with somebody to forgive them. And I, and I believe completely. We could have an entire conversation about why forgiveness is not a feeling, why forgiveness is not about pain just going away, why forgiveness isn't about the other person saying they're sorry. There's lots of ways that we need to rephrase and reframe what forgiveness is. But I think we can pretty concurrently conclude that if you're really working to forgive someone, you are also working to pray for them. And I've got lists in my head of people that I've got a legal pad for. And you have lists in your head. And there's a powerful transition and transaction. Even now, if you were to pray for this person that's on your list. It doesn't mean you have to text them or call them. But if you were to pray for this person and say, and not, not just to pray that they're going to change their mind and change their ways. I mean, like, pray for their family. Pray for blessings that, that nobody deserves. And nobody earns. Thank them for their salvation. Just begin to, just to, I mean, we're not praying just that evil continues and that justice doesn't ever come. I mean, that's not what we're praying for. We're praying for peace, right? And peace comes at a cost sometimes. So we're not praying just for everybody to go to la-la land together. But we, we're praying for these, these things that mercy, it's just praying for the person and saying, bless this person, fill in the blank. They're no greater a sinner than me. And I will tell you that the before and after spiritual climate of the heart uh, inside of you and the mind inside of you will change completely at the, at the onset of that prayer. So this is what I believe that potentially just a next step on this Monday or this Tuesday or this Wednesday could look like to be blessed in peacemaking and blessed in being persecuted. Who are you praying for and how can you pray for people that come against you? It makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense now why the kindest, nicest person Whoever walked the earth that children loved and only healed sick people would actually be killed and persecuted. Because love looks like truth sometimes. Love has to look like truth sometimes. And people want you to be loyal. Jesus was loyal. Jesus was thick and thick to the end. He died for his disciples and he died for you and I. But he was not a loyalist. And he was not afraid to hurt your feelings or mine. He was not afraid to speak the truth of love. And peace doesn't come from tolerance. And it doesn't come from... Um, from rhetorically proving your point. Peace comes when truth looks like love and love looks like truth. When Jesus moves into the situation 
and closer to the person of disagreement. When it is not when we get on CNN and, and type out our, our thesis on Instagram about how the world's better because you know how to, but when you move into your family and decide what Mother Teresa says, if you want to see peace, then go home and love your family. When we move back into the family room, move back into the, to the friend group, move back into the small group, move back into the uh, relatives that live far away and say, um, Father, bless their life. They're no bigger a sinner than me. This is the only place that peace happens. Peace is not for free. It comes at a cost. It came at the price of Jesus, and peace was impossible without Jesus Christ. So I want to close up this segment of Inside Out. And this is really, maybe take a picture of it, but really something that I think I could hang on to for a while. Something that I think could really help me sink my teeth into what exactly is a disciple. Like if we're followers of Jesus who build family, the thing about the definition, well, disciple somebody that makes a disciple is that Steve Jobs makes disciples. Everybody kind of gets people to copy them. That's not what Jesus is talking about. There's a qualitative measurement, yes, that disciple making means getting somebody to follow Jesus. But then we've got to define who is Jesus because almost everybody has a definition of who they think Jesus is. I believe if we were to take Matthew 5 to the bank and really uh, use it as an anchor for some of the key themes of what we're going to see throughout the rest of Matthew 7 through 28. We're going to see inside the belief systems uh, that inform the outside behavior uh, actions of Jesus might look something like this. A disciple is someone that is learning how to need better. That need is leading to prayer. Disciple is somebody that is just somebody who goes to prayer quicker. I'm following Jesus. How do you know? I'm going to him. How do you know that that's, that, that's progress? How do you know that step? It, it's because... When things come up, when problems arise, when plans become in the horizon, I get to him quicker. I get to prayer quicker. I pray longer. I pray more. And I pray with more hope and affection than ever before. How do I know I'm becoming a disciple? Because I read good books? Because I go to church on Sunday? Because I, I evangelize the people in the street? No, no. This is, I believe this is what Matthew 5 would say. It's saying it's not all these things. It's no, I just, I'm coming to prayer quicker. This is what a disciple would look like. How do you know what a disciple is? It's not somebody that just speaks well and pontificates. It's somebody that moves to prayer quicker. What about number two? Somebody that's learning that trust is the thing that leads to righteousness. It's, it's, it's somebody that is learning that, um, as Timothy was praying earlier and leading us through that worship time, that me uh, making a checklist in my mind or, or trying harder is not the solution. Actually, as I see unrighteousness come out of me, it's a gift actually disguised. It's a friend in disguise because it's showing me there's a root down here that I'm not trusting him in. And so now all of a sudden I realize that my desire to manipulate control isn't because of just some random stranded behavior malfunction that goes on in my mind. It's because I just don't believe that he's in control. So out here, instead of me trying to change my 12 steps of success, it comes back into the prayer closet and again says, where do I not believe he's good? Now we're moving. Now we're actually growing. Now we're taking steps when we realize that mercy is the thing that leads uh, to generosity and that there's this beautiful place that mercy is its own reward, that, um, that it's not about, you know, getting a lot of attention or proving to myself and proving to others um, why I'm a disciple, but it just becomes a joy in and of itself. I don't have to use car salesmen anybody now. I don't have to get the person at Publix to pray with me. I don't have to you know, heal anything. I, 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 can just, I can walk as the Father walks, and all my job is is just to give as I've been given, and give as I've been given, and when I'm all out, I can give as I, I've been given. And lastly, what we looked at today, that truth is the only thing that leads to peace. 
um, and that ultimately my, my position here, my name is Oliver, and which actually means peace uh, in uh, you know, American you know, allegory and rhetoric because of the peace treaty that um, Olive Branch petitioned that in 1775, the, uh, Thomas Jefferson and those guys tried to create with the king. But my Chinese name also means peace. Uh, it means that uh, if you were to have peace in a place and create a safe place for, for others, then you can have safety in a place. That's what my Chinese name means. And for a long time, I had mistaken the difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Peacekeeping is when there isn't actually any conflict. Peacemaking is when you love people and love, um, uh, love safety for others enough that you are willing to move towards people even if it costs you, um, even if it costs you conflict. And so maybe this is what a disciple is doing. They're learning to need, they're learning to trust, they're learning to give, and they're learning to teach. That could be a really powerful way to think about what it means to grow as a disciple. There's got to be fruit. Jesus says if there's no fruit on the tree, then there's a problem. And we've got to be able to look at where the fruit would be. Maybe, maybe somebody that knows God and sees kingdom blessing in and out of their life is learning to need and trust and give and teach more. Do we have time for communion? Timothy, do we have communion? I think we do. That's great. I wasn't sure because we hadn't seen the, I hadn't seen the tables. But um, I'm going to invite you guys to stand, and we're going to close this segment uh, uh, this morning. I'm going to read this passage to us, and we're going to take communion. I'm going to invite the band to come forward as they close us in this time. But this is what Jesus says in Matthew uh, 28, verse 26. He says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup. And we had given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I thought it would be appropriate to close in communion um, today because both uh, the first and the last segments of the um, Sermon on the Mount, or rather the Beatitudes, uh, bring us back to the place of need. They both meet us in the place of need. When we're being persecuted and when we're poor in spirit, we go to him, and both of them have the reward of the kingdom of heaven. There's a guy named Lou Engel who leads prayer movements uh, in the United States, and uh, he was speaking about recently uh, the turmoil in the nation around the topic of abortion. And he said that his first inclination at this prayer meeting, which he has a lot of national recognition, was to kind of host this fast. Um, uh, this idea that we were going to kind of do without um, and we were going to lean away from our flesh so that our spirit would become more awake. And that's kind of what the teaching of fasting would mean. And because of that alertness that we would gain wisdom, insight, and compassion for the moment and for the era that we're in. But he said that only a couple of days after that, he sensed that that actually wasn't what the Lord was asking him to do, that instead that the Lord was telling uh, his group and, and, and the people that were following him, instead of fasting, to take communion. And I think it's appropriate, both for the issue of abortion in the nation, but also just for day-to-day -day life, is that receiving blessing in the kingdom of heaven is less about emptying self and being full with him. And communion is an appropriate response to neediness because he's good and he provides. Anything in us that wants to be a disciple and follow Jesus and do better in nine steps towards success um, that doesn't find its place first in poverty of spirit has no, uh, has no favor and way in gaining um, in following Jesus. And so I think it's appropriate today as we pray and as uh, these guys make their way in to help serve uh, communion with us um, is that um, the best offering that we can give to our family, the best peace that we can create in our churches and in our nation, the best way that we can confront abortion is to be full of Jesus. 
um, less so be, be fasting and stopping of sinning, uh, which of course is obviously um, the, the fruit of, uh, of a revival of a church turned towards God is less sin for sure. But the pre- preliminary step of all, of all um, revival is being full of Jesus, is being full of neediness that is met in Jesus. And so, Father, we come to your cup and we come to your bread right now, and we thank you that it's enough. I thank you, Jesus, that, um, that you've, you've, made it, um, you've made it simple for us, you've made it accessible to us, and that the table is wide open to um, anybody that would trust and believe that your kingdom is here because of your blood spilled. And so um, in this moment, as we go to take um, communion, um, I thank you for marriages being restored, for nation being changed, for the gospel being proclaimed, not because we're trying harder, but because we're needing more. Because we go to you quicker, we go to you hungrier, and we go to you with more humility. And so thank you that you're filling us and... And in fact, the, the kingdom transaction of repentance is, is actually less about trying harder and more about letting go and receiving more from what you want to give us for free. So thank you for the cup. Thank you for the bread. As the band comes up and joins us as they lead us, um, we'll make our way to take communion and close. In Jesus' name, amen. We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.